Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Today's podcast is sponsored by Feels. Shipped to your doorstep in only a few days, Feels CBD is the natural, healthy, better way to feel better. And you can become a member today by going to feels.com slash gold and you'll get 50% automatically taken off your first order with free shipping. And the podcast is also sponsored by True Bill. $5 here, $10 there. Monthly subscriptions often feel like a great deal until you forget about them. Get your subscriptions under control with True Bill. So go right now to truebill.com gold. It'll save you hundreds of dollars a year. During my last podcast, I discussed the initial taper tantrum. The market was finally starting to react to the Fed talking about tapering later this year or in the fall beginning the taper process well that continued this week especially after the federal open market committee released the minutes of its last meeting on wednesday because following the minute release we had a pretty good sell-off that continued on into thursday the sectors that were the hardest hit were the economically sensitive cyclical stocks, anything that was really part of the reflation trade. Because now, according to all the experts, the Fed is Johnny on the spot. It is now tightening. And because it is tightening, inflation is no longer a concern. And the markets are reacting to this tightening cycle the same way they have reacted to tightening cycles of the past without really appreciating the difference between this tightening cycle and the tightening cycles that preceded it. In fact, it's hard to even call what we're going to experience a tightening cycle because number one, so far, the only thing that has happened during this cycle is that the Fed has talked. That's it. It's all talk and no action. Now, I agree that it does seem that it's possible or certainly not 
a sure thing, but it is possible that we will actually begin a taper. Now, it's not a sure thing. We may never get a taper. The only thing we may get is talk of a taper. And in fact, that might constitute the entirety of the tightening cycle. Because by the time the Fed gets around to actually tapering, it could be too late. The economy could already be turning down. The markets could already be turning down, in which case any plans to taper are going to have to be torn apart because the Fed is basically hostage to the markets and to the economy. So we may never actually get to the taper. Well, if that's it, if the entirety of the tightening cycle consists of talking about tapering, why should that mean anything? Why should the dollar be rallying? And the dollar index was up about 1% on the week. It closed just under 93.50. But why would you be buying the dollar if the only tightening we were going to get was talking about tapering? Same thing with gold. Why would you be selling gold on a taper if that's all we're going to get? But you can't say this is a normal tightening cycle and so it's negative for gold if all we're going to get is taper talk. Why is that negative for gold? Gold was down on the week. It didn't get killed. It was down just under 2%. But I don't think it should be going down at all. I think it should be going up right now based on the reality of what is actually going to happen not based on the fantasy about what the Fed is talking about. But even if the Fed actually gets around to starting the taper, I think the odds that they actually complete the process, meaning that they wind down QE completely, right now they're doing $120 billion a month split between treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. And in fact, so far, the only thing we know about the taper is that they're going to taper mortgage-backed securities and treasuries equally. They're not going to favor one or the other. And that's about the only detail that has been released other than the fact that the process may begin sometime in the fall, and then again, it may not. But why the markets would be reacting to this is a sight to behold. And in fact, when the minutes were released, there were a lot of people that were talking about the fact that somehow these minutes meant that the taper would actually happen sooner than was expected. But if you actually read the minutes, there's nothing there that would really suggest that. There was nothing new in these minutes. The Fed did not reveal anything that hadn't been already revealed by other FOMC members in their various talks. In fact, one thing that was reiterated in the minutes was that the criteria for tapering was very different than the criteria for a rate hike. And so the Fed is, again, going out of its way to make it clear that just because we start tapering doesn't mean we're thinking about, thinking about, talking about raising interest rates, right? Because raising interest rates are subject to a whole different set of criteria that we're not even close to meeting. And as I discussed on my last podcast, we're never going to meet those criteria because the Fed is never going to be satisfied that inflation is high enough or that it's likely to stick around long enough. And they're never going to be satisfied that we're at full employment. So the Fed is basically not going to raise rates, which makes sense because during the last tightening cycle, they were able to raise rates as high as two and a half percent before breaking the back of the overleveraged economy. In the cycle before that, they were able to get rates above 5%. 
Well, if as high as they could get last time was two and a half percent, it makes sense that at this time they can't raise them at all. In fact, I think the only thing that they could do this time is taper because last time they were able to taper and raise rates. This time, I think at best, they're just going to have a taper. And of course, after we get the next easing cycle, which is coming, and you know, as the tightening cycles get less and less tight, the easing cycles get looser and looser. So the next easing of policy, the next time the Fed has to go back to the QE well, it's going to be drawing a lot more water. So we're going to be doing even more QE the next time than we did following the COVID disaster. Maybe the next one is going to be the Delta variant QE. But whatever it is, the next time the Fed has to ramp it up, it's going to ramp it up to a much greater degree. Again, it's like a drug. You always need more and more of it. And then when you try to kick the habit, you can give up less and less of it. And so I think to the extent that we actually get to a taper this time, I think the next easing cycle will never get to the taper. All we'll have is the taper talk, but we'll never actually walk the taper walk if we even walk that walk now. And by the way, all the Fed has said with respect to taper is that they're going to start doing it, but they haven't actually described what it's going to look like. If they're doing $120 billion now, what are they going to do to taper? Are they going to reduce it to $115? Are they going to reduce it to $110? They didn't say, nor did they say what kind of intervals there might be to ratchet it down. Like if they go from $120 billion to $110 billion, how long will they stay to $110 billion? When will they go from 110 to 100 or to 90? Is there going to be any preset timetable? Last time they tapered, they had it on autopilot. They said it was going to be like watching paint dry. Well, it turned out to be something a lot different than watching paint dry. So I don't think they're going to go back to an autopilot taper again. I think taper is always going to be data dependent. So they may do a gradual taper. Maybe they'll take the monthly QE down from 120 to 110, and then they're going to do 110 and be data dependent. And if that's all we get, how is that tightening? I mean, it's slightly less ridiculously easy than what we have now, but going from completely ridiculously easy to slightly less completely ridiculously easy, how does that constitute tightening? Why is that a reason to buy dollars? Why is that a reason to sell gold? It's not, especially when you realize that any tightening today is going to be proceeded by loosening tomorrow. And the tightening simply lays the foundation for the next easing, which will be much bigger, right? Even looser than the last easing. So if you realize that it's going to be successive smaller tightening cycles and bigger easing cycles, then you know that any tightening sows the seeds of its own destruction. And since markets are forward looking, they should already be looking beyond the current tightening cycle or the threat of a tightening cycle to the next easing cycle, which will be even bigger. In fact, while everybody is talking about the Fed's plans to taper, right? yesterday we did get the balance sheet numbers that were released by the Fed. And last week, the balance sheet grew by $85.4 billion. That's just one week. Now the balance sheet stands at an all-time record high, $8.343 trillion. 
That's what's important. Forget about what the Fed is talking about doing. Look at what they're actually still doing. All of this is bullish for commodities, bullish for gold in particular. Yet again, commodities got killed on the week because people are factoring in some economic slowdown that is going to result from the taper and that the fact that the taper is going to snuff out this smoldering inflation fire. Look at oil. Oil was down about 14% on the week. That's a big drop. We settled just under $62 a barrel. Now, of course, oil is also going down, not just because people are worried about the Fed tapering, but they're also worried about the economy slowing due to the Delta variant, right? More and more countries around the world are starting to lock down as more and more vaccinated people are coming down with COVID. And so the markets are starting to think, well, the economy might slow down. People aren't going to travel as much. So the demand for oil is going to go down. And so they're worried about that. But this is very interesting thinking about it. If you are worried about the Fed tightening and you're also worried about Delta hurting the global economy, it makes no sense to worry about both because both can't happen because the Fed has already said, and of course they don't even have to say it, it should be obvious, but Fed officials have actually come out and said this, but if the Delta variant ends up slowing economic growth, they ain't gonna taper. Their taper is held hostage to the economy. And if the economy is impacted by Delta variant, and we actually see a slowdown in the economy, a pickup in unemployment, before the Fed tapers, there's not going to be a taper. In fact, if the Fed wants an excuse not to taper as if they needed one because they're full of excuses, but the Delta variant is a very convenient excuse that the markets will accept. Yeah, you know, we were getting ready to taper, but you know, we can't do it now because of the Delta variant. We were tapering only because we thought everything was getting back to normal because of the vaccines and the economy was reopening. But now that we're really not sure of the efficacy of the vaccines when it comes to Delta variant, and we're still nervous about what's going to happen this fall or maybe in the winter, we get into flu season and it's colder weather. And so we're just going to delay the taper. It makes perfect sense that they're going to do that, which means you should not be worried about both of these things happening because they both can't happen. If we get an economic slowdown due to the Delta variant, there's no taper. The only way we get a taper is if the economy is not impacted at all. So commodities are way overreacting to these twin threats when at most only one of them is a threat. And the Fed's tightening really doesn't even amount to a true tightening in any real sense of the word. It's just a slight reduction in the amount of easing. And it's only going to be temporary until they crank it up. Because once all of these new spending plans get enacted, they're going to have to be paid for. Where's the money going to come from? It's going to come from the Fed. So they're going to have to increase the size of their QE program in order to monetize all this debt. Because otherwise, there's no way for the government to get the money unless they allow interest rates to go way up, which of course would crush the markets and crush the economy. So in order to prevent that from happening, the Fed is going to print the money and monetize the debt. Well, they can't do that while they're tapering. They have to reverse the taper and ramp up QE. And that is what investors still haven't figured out. In fact, look at how they sold off 
these inflation stocks. I mentioned that oil was down 14%. Well, not surprisingly, oil stocks were the weakest segment of the S&P 500. I think the oil stocks as a group were down about 7%, right? About 50% of the decline that we saw in oil. Now you can contrast that to the declining gold stocks. As I mentioned a bit earlier, gold itself was down under 2% on the week. So actually, when you think about it, given how everybody is pricing in a Fed tightening, the fact that gold only dropped by not even 2% shows you that to a degree, some of these gold traders get it that this is a fake tightening because if it really was the beginning of a normal tightening cycle, maybe gold would be a lot weaker, especially when you're talking about $1,800 gold or now you know, $1,780, about where it's settled on the week. But despite the fact that gold held up relatively well in the face of all these tightening fears, look what happened to gold stocks. The GDX and GDXJ were down 12 and 13% respectively. So in other words, gold stocks dropped by six times, more than six times the percent that gold itself. So oil goes down 14%, oil stocks go down half as much, 7%. Gold goes down 2%. Gold stocks get crushed 12 to 13%. So why are gold stocks so much more susceptible to a drop in the price of gold than oil stocks are to a drop in the price of oil? And that's because the traders for gold stocks are looking further into the future and assuming that the current price of gold is unsustainable. They just assume that because the Fed is launching this tightening cycle and there's not going to be any inflation because the Fed is, you know, on the job fighting it with higher interest rates, they are factoring in much, much lower future gold prices than the ones that we see today. Now, I think the oil traders think that there's some limit to how low future oil prices may drop. And I think that's already factored into these stocks, which is why they still, to me, the oil stocks were cheap even before this week's decline. But the gold traders are really, really pessimistic now about the future price of gold. Not so much the current price of gold, but the future price of gold. And it's the future price of gold that is reflected in the present value of these gold mining companies because their future earnings are dependent on those future prices. But this again is where I see the incredible investment opportunity because these stocks are super cheap because not only are traders wrong in their belief that the price of gold is going to be lower in the future than it is today, it's actually going to be much higher. Even if gold just stays where it is, right? They're wrong because they've mispriced gold stocks because gold is not priced for $1,800 gold. Maybe it's priced for $1,400 gold, or I'm not really sure where it's priced, but it's not priced for the current level. But it's not going to be at the current level either. We are going substantially higher in the price of gold because this tightening cycle is complete BS. And the next easing cycle is going to be bigger than all the other easing cycles combined. And remember, that's what I said before. When the Fed ended QE3, I said that the next round of QE, QE4, would be bigger than QE1, 2, and 3 combined. And I was right, because it has been. Because the Fed's balance sheet has more than doubled what it increased to during the entire time period of the first three rounds of QE. And again, remember... The Fed is not talking about ending QE. All they're talking about doing now 
is tapering. I bet even if they manage to completely taper to the point where they're doing no more QE, right, where they totally stop purchases, which I don't think is going to happen. I think it's impossible for that to happen. But even if it does, by the time they get around to the last taper, I would bet you that the balance sheet is over $10 trillion. So it would be huge. Then when they have to ramp up the next round of QE, they're going to have to go to $20 trillion or higher to finance that because we have a much bigger habit. It's a much bigger bubble. They're going to have to print a lot more money next time than they did last time, which is exactly what I said the last time. And what I said came true back then, and it's going to come true once again. And when the markets understand this and start pricing this in, then you're going to see a completely different reaction in gold and in the dollar. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Feels is a premium CBD that will help you clear your head and feel your best. It's hassle-free and is delivered directly to your door. CBD naturally helps reduce stress, anxiety, pain, and sleeplessness. And there's no hangovers or addiction. In fact, Feels worked great for me and I appreciated it more after I ran out because then I was having trouble sleeping through the night. So I am currently anxiously awaiting my new shipment. All you need to do is place a few drops of feels under your tongue and then you'll feel the difference. The thing to remember about CBD is that you need to find the right dose that works for you. In fact, Feels offers a free CBD hotline to help guide you through your personal experience so that you find that perfect dose. The Feels customer service team is dedicated to making sure you get the best use of your CBD. And joining the Feels monthly memberships makes your self-care easy. You'll save money on every order and you can pause or cancel at any time. Start feeling better with Feels. Become a member today by going to feels.com slash gold and you'll get 50% off your first order and free shipping. That's feels, F-E-A-L-S dot com slash gold to become a member and to get 50% off automatically on your first order with free shipping. Feels.com slash gold. Now, of course, Bitcoin held up very well during the week. In fact, Bitcoin was up during the week. It was pretty strong. It shrugged off all of the concerns about the taper or the Fed raising interest rates. Now, why is that? Well, that's because Bitcoin is irrelevant to monetary policy. It doesn't matter what interest rates are. It doesn't matter what inflation is. Bitcoin's not an inflation hedge. I mean, the only thing that's relevant to Bitcoin on interest rates is the fact that interest rates are so low, people are interested in speculating, which is why a lot of other speculative stocks held up pretty well. In fact, the NASDAQ outperformed the Dow way outperformed the Russell 2000 was down about two and a half percent because you have economically sensitive stocks there and the Dow was down more than the S&P but the Nasdaq held up relatively well because people are looking to gamble in these momentum stocks and Bitcoin again is a highly speculative asset it is not an inflation hedge it is not a store of value so it doesn't react 
to the perception that the Fed is going to be tightening policy to fight inflation because people aren't buying it as a hedge against inflation. I mean, they market it that way, but people are buying it because they think the price is going to skyrocket, right? If you think something is going to go up tenfold in the next year, which a lot of people buying Bitcoin do, you know, that's not an inflation hedge. I mean, inflation is not going to be anywhere near that high. People are looking for massive and rapid growth when they buy Bitcoin. Nobody is looking to hedge against inflation because inflation, even if you take an honest look and say, okay, inflation is 10%, 10% a year. Well, if you're buying Bitcoin thinking it's going to double in a year or triple in a year, how does that make sense as an inflation hedge? That's way beyond anything that inflation does. So Bitcoin just marches to the beat of its own drum. In fact, one of the things that I think really caused the rally over the last couple of days in Bitcoin is the news that United Wholesale Mortgage, which they're saying is the second largest mortgage lender in the United States, that they're going to start, I think, in the third quarter, allowing people who have mortgages to make their payments in Bitcoin, right? And this has got everybody in the Bitcoin community real excited uh, because, oh, you see, Peter Schiff is wrong, right? Or guys like Peter Schiff, because this is showing mainstream adoption. Bitcoin is now going to be used to make mortgage payments. So it's like a currency. It's a medium of exchange. It's being adopted. And so everybody's excited. See, this proves the concept is working. It doesn't prove anything. I mean, this is more of a marketing gimmick, again, for United Wholesale Mortgage. I mean, if there are a number of people who have accounts with United Wholesale Mortgage and who also have a cryptocurrency. I mean, they're starting out with Bitcoin. Maybe they'll expand it to include Ether or some other currencies, but they're talking initially about Bitcoin. But let's say there are a number of people who have mortgages that are run through United Wholesale and they also have Bitcoin wallets and they want to sell some of their Bitcoin and make their mortgage payments. I guess they could allow it as a business decision if they think there's some demand there. But this does not constitute Bitcoin somehow advancing on its goal or its original goal of being money. Because remember, the mortgages themselves are not denominated in Bitcoin. They're denominated in dollars. The mortgage payments are in dollars. They're not in Bitcoin. So it's not like these are Bitcoin mortgages and people are paying them off with Bitcoin. And of course, United Wholesale Mortgage, they don't want the Bitcoin. They're not talking about allowing people to pay mortgages in Bitcoin because they want your Bitcoin. They just want you to pay your mortgage. And if selling your Bitcoin makes it easier to pay your mortgage, well, they're willing to allow you to do that because all they're going to do is allow you to use your Bitcoin the way Shift Gold allows you to use Bitcoin right now, if you want to buy gold and you have Bitcoin, you can go to Shift Gold and you can elect to pay using BitPay. And that way you can go to your Bitcoin wallet and you can use BitPay and BitPay will sell your Bitcoin so that it gets US dollars so that they can then give Shift Gold the US dollars and you can get your gold. So Shift Gold accept dollars BitPay accepts Bitcoin and then sells them to get dollars to give the shift gold. I know a lot of people say, hey, Peter, you're a hypocrite because you say nobody takes Bitcoin and then you take Bitcoin, you sell gold for Bitcoin. I don't. I make it easy for people who have Bitcoin to sell it 
to buy gold, but they're buying gold with dollars. Shift gold only sees dollars. All we get is dollars. We never touch the Bitcoin. And I'm sure to the extent that United Wholesale Mortgage actually rolls this thing out, that's exactly what's going to happen. You're going to be paying your mortgage by selling your Bitcoin. And of course, there will be some added transaction costs there because you're selling your Bitcoin before you pay your mortgage. A lot of people who already own Bitcoin probably don't want to sell their Bitcoin to pay their mortgage. They probably want to use their fiat currency to pay their mortgage. So I don't think you're going to see a lot of longtime Bitcoin hodlers suddenly deciding that they want to sell their Bitcoin so they can pay their mortgage. So again, I think it's more of a publicity thing. You know, CNBC really hyped this thing up constantly. Don't even really understand what they're saying because I was listening to a discussion about it and one of the anchors was talking and they said, you know, I'm wondering what United Wholesale is going to do with the Bitcoin. Are they going to keep them or are they going to sell them and turn them into fiat? She didn't know what they were going to do. And then they speculated that, you know, if they turn around and sell them for fiat, that it would then make it a taxable event for the mortgage payer because now the Bitcoin would have been sold. But it shows you how little they understand about the taxes that apply to Bitcoin over there on CNBC because it doesn't matter what the bank does with your Bitcoin. If you use the Bitcoin to pay a mortgage, even if the bank decides to hold on to your Bitcoin and never sell it, the fact that you used it to make a mortgage payment, the IRS is going to say that constitutes a sale. The minute you take any of your Bitcoin and exchange it, because they would look at this as barter. That's how the IRS code would treat. If you if you take Bitcoin and, and buy anything with it, the IRS looks at that as a barter transaction, right? You're bartering your property, your Bitcoin for something else. And whenever you do barter, whatever you've bartered, and the same thing applies to gold. It's not just Bitcoin, right? If you buy gold at $1,000 an ounce, and then you give it to somebody when it's worth $2,000 an ounce in exchange for some goods or services that they've provided you, the IRS expects you to report that transaction and say, hey, I, I just sold my gold and I made this profit. Now, of course, most people wouldn't report it. And of course, how would the IRS know? Because you're giving somebody a, a gold coin. No one, there's no record of that. But of course, when you give somebody Bitcoin, there is a record of that. It's on the computer. It's on the whole distributive letter. It's on the blockchain. So it's going to be much easier for the IRS to enforce payments on Bitcoin barter transactions than it would if you bartered gold or silver, for example. So it doesn't matter. These are taxable transactions. But I think what everybody is trying to promote or the false impression that they're trying to create is this is somehow involving Bitcoin in, in mortgages, which it's not. I mean, this company, United Wholesale Mortgage, could just as easily say, hey, you can pay your mortgage using your frequent fryer uh, miles from your airline account or using your reward points for your credit, from your credit card account, because those points have value. That mileage has value. It has a cash value. So you could transfer in your points or your mileage and United Wholesale could liquidate it and, and get the currency so you could pay your mortgage. I mean, if you have a margin account and you've got stocks in your account, you could write a check against your brokerage account and you're basically paying your mortgage uh, by leveraging your stocks. But you're not using your stocks 
to pay the mortgage. You're using them as lever as collateral to take out a loan. You know, if you are paying your mortgage with your rewards points, you're not paying them with the points. You're paying them with the dollars that the points are worth. And the same thing is going to happen if you pay your mortgage with Bitcoin. You're paying your mortgage with dollars. You're just selling your Bitcoin to get the dollars. See, what would really be Bitcoin in the mortgage industry would be if the bank actually made a loan in Bitcoin, a mortgage. So let's say there's a house that I want to buy and the house is 10 Bitcoin. So I want to go and buy it and I'm going to pay the seller two Bitcoin. But I don't because I don't have 10 Bitcoin. I only have enough for a 20% down payment. So I have two Bitcoin that I can give to the seller, but I need the bank to loan me the other eight Bitcoin. So then the bank says, okay, we'll give you this eight Bitcoin loan and we're going to amortize that loan over 30 years. We're going to put in an interest rate and here's your payments, right? Here's your mortgage book. And every month, here's how many Satoshis you need to send in. And over the 30 years, you will have fully repaid your mortgage and the bank is going to get its eight Bitcoin back plus whatever Satoshis in interest. If that was the transaction that was going on, then, okay, you'd have something to talk about. If something like that was actually going on, then I would have to say, I guess I was wrong. You know, Bitcoin is working as money because you've got mortgages denominated in Bitcoin, but that's never going to happen. And it's obvious why that's not going to happen. Nobody is going to borrow Bitcoin and pay it back if you're a Bitcoin holder and you think Bitcoin is going to a million. That's like being short Bitcoin. Can you imagine having a mortgage in Bitcoin and you have and every you know month when Bitcoin goes up, your mortgage payment goes up? I mean, you could obviously be at a point where you can't even afford the mortgage because Bitcoin becomes so expensive that you can't make your payments and then your house ends up in foreclosure. So nobody who's buying a house is going to want to take the risk of denominating the mortgage in Bitcoin because who knows how expensive Bitcoin could be and home buyers don't want to take that risk. But on the other side of the coin, the bank, the bank wouldn't want to make a loan where it's going to be repaid in Bitcoin because Bitcoin can crash at any minute, in which case it would get back nothing. I mean, what if Bitcoin went down to a, you know, a dollar of Bitcoin? You know, well, yeah, I can pay off my whole mortgage with eight bucks. The bank is screwed because the bank loaned me 10 Bitcoin, you know, when the Bitcoin had a much higher value. The only way they would be willing to do that is if there was no risk because nobody cared what the Bitcoin was worth in dollars because there were no dollars. Bitcoin was the meat of exchange. Bitcoin was everybody's currency. That was everybody's reference point. So as long as you loaned out eight Bitcoin and you got eight Bitcoin back, nothing else mattered. But right now it does matter because the only reference to Bitcoin is its price in dollars. And because of that, nobody is, want, is going to want to borrow in Bitcoin because it may go way up. Nobody is going to want to loan in Bitcoin because it may go way down, which means there can't be any loans in Bitcoin. And you can't have money where you can't have loans. You have to be able to have borrowing. Money has to be a medium of deferred payment. That's another quality of money. You have to be able to loan money out and repay loans. And you can't do that in Bitcoin. And so that's just another reason why it's not money 
And all this stuff is just a bunch of hype to try to get people excited to buy Bitcoin. And so far, of course, it's working. But I think the smart money is going to sell into the pump and dump more Bitcoin onto the market. Those monthly subscriptions can really add up. And sometimes we don't even notice the monthly deductions coming out of our bank accounts or our credit cards. Just pick a number between 1 and 10. Whatever it is, it ain't high enough for the number of subscriptions you likely have, including all the ones that you forgot you had. That's where Truebill comes in. It's an app that gives you the power to take control of your subscriptions, keep the ones you want, cancel the ones you don't, and more importantly, to get rid of the ones that you forgot about. On average, people are saving thousands a year by using Truebill. You can see all your subscriptions in one convenient place, allowing you to keep the ones you want. Cancel the ones you don't right from your app. And your Truebill concierge is there when you need them to cancel those unwanted subscriptions. So you don't have to do it yourself. No talking to humans, no difficult conversations. Truebill has over 2 million users and has helped them save over $100 million. In fact, I know from personal experience the problems that can result from subscriptions that you don't realize you still have. I canceled a cell phone service, yet the cell phone service I canceled left one small $10 recurring charge on my bill. So small, I didn't even notice it, and I paid it for over a year when I'd already canceled the service. Then my credit card got replaced by another one, and so the auto pay no longer worked. I didn't update it because I didn't even know I was paying it, and then my account went into arrears. It eventually went into collection and started screwing up my credit because I owed money for a service that I didn't even realize that I was still paying. Had I had my true bill back then, the way I have it now, all of that would have been avoided and I would have saved hundreds of dollars in service fees that I didn't use and I wouldn't have had my credit screwed up. So start canceling your unused subscriptions today at truebill.com gold. Go right now. That's truebill.com gold. It can save you hundreds of dollars a year. Now, also on Bitcoin, I've been doing quite a few interviews about Bitcoin and Bitcoin gold debates and stuff like that. You can see them all on YouTube probably. But, you know, some of the things I think are funny. So on one interview, I mentioned that I regretted not buying Bitcoin when I first heard about it. Because I think I was asked, you know, what are some of the regrets that you have? You know, what are the things that you wish you'd have done? I said, sure, I wish I had bought Bitcoin. I regret not buying Bitcoin when I first heard about it because it was less than $10 of Bitcoin. So clearly, had I bought a bunch of it back then, you know, I would have been able to sell it at some point uh, for a lot of money. You know, whether I would have been able to hold on up until today, it's hard to say because I've been so skeptical about it the entire way. It's hard to imagine that I would have had diamond hands throughout this whole thing, but you never know. Maybe if I would have bought it, I might've been corrupted by the bubble. Maybe I would have been blinded by my own gains and who knows, I, maybe I'd still be holding it. I don't know, but clearly I should have bought it with the benefit of hindsight, right? I mean, that changes everything. I mean, once you know what happened, then you know exactly what you should have done. But at the moment, you don't know that because you don't have the benefit of hindsight when you're making a real-time decision, right? It's easy to be a Monday morning quarterback when you know what happened. It's different to call the plays live on the field when you don't know what happened. But the interesting thing about a lot of the coverage of this fact that I admitted the obvious, duh, of course. I mean, 
Everybody should regret not buying Bitcoin if they knew about it when it was less than $10 a coin. I mean, you'd be an idiot not to regret not buying it. But the real idiots, I think, are going to be the people who are not selling it. I think they're going to have big regrets. I think a lot of people in the future, when they're asked, what are your regrets? I regret that I didn't sell my Bitcoin, that I didn't take my profits. But you've got all these uh, articles being written about, oh, Peter Schiff admits that he regrets not buying Bitcoin. I mean, what's, what's the big deal about that? Again, I would be lying if I claimed I didn't regret it because clearly I would have made a lot of money had I bought some cheap Bitcoin or Bitcoin at least at a much lower price than it is today. But that doesn't mean I would buy Bitcoin today. Just because I didn't buy it at $10 doesn't mean I'm going to buy it at $40,000 or $50,000. Of course not. It's irrelevant. The fact that I wished I had bought it when it was real cheap means nothing when you're talking about what do I think about it today? And I think everybody who owns Bitcoin wishes they bought a lot more when it was a lot cheaper. So my regret at not buying Bitcoin is probably matched by other people's regrets of not buying more. It's irrelevant because all of this is being said from a point in time when the price is very high and we realize that had we had bought it or bought more, we would have the opportunity now to sell. But now in real time, do I regret not buying Bitcoin today? No, I don't regret it. Now, obviously, if in 10 years, Bitcoin is at millions of dollars a coin, oh, then sure, then I will regret it. But I don't regret it now because I don't think it's going to happen. And the fact that I admitted the obvious shouldn't even be a news story. But these Bitcoin guys are looking for anything they can do to try to spin a positive story and try to say that I'm making some kind of admission here that I, that I should have bought Bitcoin and therefore you should buy it too because Peter Schiff regrets not buying it himself. You can't make that connection. And it's just disingenuous of the Bitcoin community to try to do that. We also got some other economic data, not that many points that came out since the last podcast, but we did get the Philadelphia Fed Manufacturing Index for August. That missed expectations. They were looking for 25, which would have been an improvement over July, which was 21.9. But instead of going up, we went down. The actual number was 19.4. So again, you've already seen some economic data there that was weaker than expected. We got some housing starts and permit numbers way weaker than expected on starts. The starts from the prior month was 1.643 million. They did notch that up in the revisions to 1.65 million. But the expectation was for a slight drop to 1.61 million in July. Instead, we dropped all the way down to one spot 534 million. So a big drop in starts. In fact, it was even below the low end of the estimate range because they have a low end and a high end where all the estimates come in. And this number was lower than even the lowest estimate that anybody made. So why are home builders starting fewer homes? Well, that makes sense. We already talked about the collapse of home builder sentiment. Why are home builders so pessimistic? Because homes are very expensive to construct right now due to all the inflation that is driving up the costs. And so because it's now so expensive to build homes, a lot of Americans can't afford to buy new homes. Even with record low mortgage rates, they still can't swing the payments. And so this is a weakening 
in the housing sector. But of course, if fewer homes are getting built, well, fewer people need jobs in construction. So this does not bode well for employment in this sector. And the housing sector is a big part of the economy, home building, and a lot of other jobs that go along with the construction process. Now, the permit numbers, those numbers actually beat. There was a slight increase and it was above expectations. They were looking for 1.62 million permits and they got 1.635 million permits. I think this is the first time that permits rose since February. So we haven't really seen a pickup in permits in a while, but permits don't necessarily ensure starts because just because you get a permit that allows you to do something doesn't mean you're gonna do it. Because I think a lot of these builders who are getting permits are gonna rethink the whole idea of building these homes. So let's see how many of these permits actually turn into starts. I have a feeling that they won't and that we're gonna see the permits coming down again. And that just is gonna mean that if you wanna buy a house, you're gonna have to buy one of the homes that already exists. And again, that's what more and more Americans are doing. They're settling for an existing home because they can't afford a new home. And that's why the delta between the existing homes and the new homes is the smallest it's ever been. And we do have this shortage of homes. I mean, a lot of people wanna buy homes because the Fed is passing out money like cotton candy, but we can't afford to build them. But that's true with all sorts of things. That's why our trade deficits are skyrocketing because everybody's got money to spend, but the economy doesn't have the capacity to produce the goods. And so we're having to rely on foreign economies to produce them for us. And so that's why the trade deficit is soaring. But, you know, we can't import houses. We got to build those things ourselves. We can import some of the raw materials, but a lot of the construction work, I mean, has to be done here in America. So we just can't import them the way we do other products. So we have a bigger shortage and the prices are going up. But of course, as we're building fewer homes and as the price to buy homes is going up, the price to rent homes and apartments is also going way up. None of which, of course, is being reflected in the CPI because the CPI uses the completely irrelevant owner's equivalent rent, which doesn't take any of this into account. It doesn't take into account the cost to buy a home and it doesn't take into account the cost to rent a home. So temporarily, this really low number is helping to make the CPI look a lot more benign than it really is, even though we're, you know, five and a half, six percent, whatever the number is now year over year, that number would be a lot higher if we didn't have this really low rent number that was one third dragging the average down. But at some point, owner's equivalent rent is going to have to catch up with reality. I mean, it can't be down there forever. At some point, they're going to have to raise that number to reflect what's actually happened to rents. Owner's equivalent rent is supposed to be a reflection of real rent. Now, why don't they just use real rent? That would be the easy thing to do, right? If the government really wanted an honest measure of inflation, why would they have to make up some cockamamie methodology for trying to guess rents? Why do you have to guess rents? We could just use the actual rents that people are paying. We could just use the actual prices that people are paying to buy homes. Why not put those components 
into the CPI? Why do you have to come up with this cockamamie concept of owner's equivalent rent and then use that instead? Well, it's obvious, right? I'm going to answer my own question. The government doesn't want to put real housing prices or real rents in the CPI because then the number will be bigger. So they make up owner's equivalent rent to keep the number down. Then, of course, you get the Federal Reserve complaining that we don't have enough inflation. Oh, we need to print more money because the inflation rate is too low. It's only too low because of the dishonest way it's being calculated. Hey, if you want more inflation, hey, just actually put rents into the CPI and then voila, we're going to have more inflation. But they don't want more inflation. They want to pretend there's less inflation so the Fed can keep on printing money using low inflation as an excuse. Also, with homes becoming increasingly less affordable, look at what happened with mortgage applications in the recent week. We had a 3.9% drop in the index consisting of a 1% decline in purchases and a 5% decline in refinances. So more on the refi side than the purchase side, but still fewer people are taking out mortgages to buy homes because fewer people can afford to buy them, even with the help of the Fed in lowering their mortgage payments. Now, also another thing that probably should be weighing on the dollar and supporting the price of gold, and it's not, is this foreign policy disaster that's playing out in the Biden administration right now over the botched exit from Afghanistan. You know, even the press now, I watched President Biden in his press conference today, and to his credit, he actually answered questions for the first time. He usually just tries to get out of Dodge right away. He makes a statement and then he leaves so he doesn't have to field any questions. This time he took a few questions and I can extend some hostility there by members of the press. And I have a feeling that this disaster is going to play out on a bigger and bigger stage. I think we've opened up a huge can of worms and all of this ultimately is gonna end up costing more money. We're gonna be spending a lot more money leaving Afghanistan than we were spending when we were staying there. In fact, we may have to come back in order to try to help get our people and the people that helped us out. I mean, who knows, this is going to be an even bigger problem Right? It's a huge can of worms now that we've opened up by trying to close the can of worms that we already opened up. We opened up maybe an even bigger one. And in fact, I think this could be such a stain on the Biden presidency. This could be the end of it. I mean, this may be something that ultimately we'll see causes Biden to step down. And guess what? Kamala Harris becomes president through the back door. I mean, maybe this is the grand plan all along, right? Hey, let's get Kamala into the White House by putting her number two on the ticket because she wasn't going to win if she was on the top of the ticket. So they had Biden up on the top, knowing that he could drag Kamala Harris into the White House as the VP. And then if Biden has to step down because he's too senile to deal with this Afghanistan problem and also some other economic problems that may be more obvious at the end of the year or getting into the midterms, maybe he steps down. And maybe, of course, that solves the problem of having Joe Biden having to run for re-election. They may feel, hey, we probably couldn't elect Kamala as a challenger, but maybe as an incumbent, maybe if she's already the president of the United States, it'll be easier to re-elect her than elect her for the first time. And of course, If Kamala Harris becomes president because Biden steps down, she can actually run two more times because the Constitution only says that you can't be elected more than twice. 
But if your first term, you're not elected, if you're elected to vice president and then you become president, you can still be elected president two more times. So Camilla Harris could have another eight years on top of whatever time she serves by serving out the remainder of the Biden term. But all this political drama, if it does play out, you would think that this would also be something that would weigh on the dollar and would be supportive of gold. Hasn't happened yet, but I think that it's another potential game changer or at least something not change the game, but accelerate the speed with which the game plays out. Now, I want to finish up, though, this podcast talking about my latest video that I put out on Sunday night. This was Nixon 50 video. I did a special video with Shift Gold to remember and remind everybody of the mistake that Richard Nixon made 50 years ago on Sunday, which was the 50-year anniversary, August 15th, 1971 is when Nixon closed the gold window. And so last Sunday was 50 years had gone by since that fateful decision was made. And so I put out that video. Now, if you haven't already seen it, take a look at my latest version. Yesterday, I uploaded what I call the director's cut to that Video And of course, like all director's cuts, it's a little bit longer, right? Because usually the directors like to put some stuff back in that the editors cut out during the editing process to make the movie a little shorter and better for the theaters to keep playing it. But when you get around to the director's cut, the director can put in a lot of other stuff. But what happened with my director's cut isn't that I just put in a lot of stuff that was taken out. I just put in a little stuff that was never included. And I really cleaned up the video Uh, re-recorded some stuff, changed some of the things that I wasn't happy with because I really conceived of this whole idea that morning, on the Sunday morning. And so I rushed all day to get this thing done and out before midnight. And the thing took a long time. And so I didn't really have a chance to get it as polished as I would have liked. And so after it came out, I was able to then over the next several days watch it and then I think about, oh, I could have said this better. Oh, why didn't I say that? Or, you know, I don't really like the way that particular image worked. Let me find another one. So I worked on it a little bit more and now I'm extremely happy with the finished product. I mean, not like the original version, you know, was bad. It was still good. And a lot of people who liked it, they saw it, they liked it, they gave it the thumbs up. But I think this newer version is even better. So I would encourage everybody, if you've already watched the initial one, just watch the director's cut too. And if you haven't watched it, then make a point of going to my YouTube channel and watching the director's cut. But I want to mention one thing in particular, because in reading some of the comments that you guys leave, and again, keep leaving me comments because I read these comments. I don't necessarily respond to all of them. In fact, I can't. I respond to some of them, but I read a lot of them that I don't respond to. So I, I get it. I, I skim through them. If you make your comment too long, I won't read it. I mean, I see these really long ones and I have no time. So try to be really concise. If your goal in the comment is to get me to read it, short and sweet is the best way to do it. But one of the things that a lot of people were commenting on is, hey, Peter, you know, why are you so going after Nixon here? Why are you letting Franklin Roosevelt off the hook, right? I mean, he's the guy that really took us off the gold standard, not Nixon. 
And the point of this was not to let FDR off the hook. I don't let him off the hook at all. In fact, I think FDR was a worse president than Nixon based on all the things that he did wrong, including taking us off the gold standard. Because had Roosevelt not done what he did, Nixon wouldn't have done what he did, right? So you needed Roosevelt to make his mistake to lay the foundation for Nixon to make another mistake. So I am not letting FDR off the hook at all. In fact, I mentioned on the video FDR taking us off the gold standard. It's just as this was the 50 years since Nixon closed the gold window. So this particular video was dedicated to that. And in no way was it suggesting that Nixon alone was responsible, that there was a partner in crime who was actually more to blame for this, and that was FDR. Because what FDR did is he ended the convertibility of U.S. Federal Reserve notes into dollars. See, people say, oh, he just ended the convertibility of dollars into gold. No, no, no. Dollars were gold. Dollars were defined, and I made this point in my video, but dollars were defined by a weight of gold. So Federal Reserve notes, when they were initially established by the Federal Reserve, they were Federal Reserve notes. That's what they were. That's what it said. If you take a Federal Reserve note and read it, it says Federal Reserve notes. And in the top, this note. So it was a note. What was a note for? It was a note that promised to pay dollars, right? I showed in my video a $20 bill. But if you look at that old $20 bill, look right above $20. It says pay to the bearer on demand $20. So the bill itself was not $20. The bill was a note that obligated the issuer, the Federal Reserve, to pay the bearer of that note $20. Well, what was $20? Well, it defined $20 on the note as gold. It was a gold note. You got your dollars in gold because the dollar was gold. So what happened when we eventually went off the gold standard, right, or we ended the convertibility, what we basically did was we scratched off that line that says we'll pay to the bearer on demand and just left the word $20. But that doesn't transform a note to pay $20 into $20. It was just a note. A good way to think about this is let's say you go and you want to check your coat and you give the coat check gal your coat and she gives you a little ticket, which is like an IOU one coat, right? So you've got this ticket and the ticket entitles you to a coat. Well, what happens if you take this ticket back, maybe you're finished with your evening or dinner or whatever, and you want to go reclaim your coat and you bring your claim check in. It says, you know, IOU one coat. And then instead of actually giving you the coat, the coat check gal, she just scratches off the IOU part and just gives you back your claim check and it says one coat on it now. Doesn't say IOU one coat, it's just one coat. And she gives you that back and that's your coat. I mean, can you put that little piece of paper on and wear it? Is it gonna keep you warm? Is it gonna keep you dry if it rains? No, a promise to pay a coat is not the same as a coat. Well, a promise to pay a dollar is not the same as the dollar. So what Nixon did is he basically turned the Federal Reserve notes just into paper, right? It's a counterfeit because these Federal Reserve notes now claim to be dollars, but they're not dollars because dollars legally have to be a specific weight of gold, not a piece of paper. So this was a huge fraud that was perpetrated on the nation 
by FDR. And of course, after he made Federal Reserve notes no longer redeemable in gold, so the public couldn't get gold for these notes, he then devalued the dollar and the price of gold that you couldn't get anymore went from $20 an ounce to 35. And he made it illegal for Americans to even own gold. So that was far more egregious. I mean, if you're going to compare the two, what Roosevelt did to America was far worse than what Nixon did. Roosevelt basically killed the dollar, put it in the coffin, and you know put a few nails in there. Nixon just put in the final nail and then threw the dirt over it. But FDR is, is the one that killed it. All Nixon really did is help bury it. So again, I don't want to try to let him off the hook. Oh, and by the way, so people understand what happened, in 1944, we had the Bretton Woods Agreement, and that's where all these central banks were going to use the U.S. dollar as their reserve. Well, since Federal Reserve notes were no longer redeemable in real dollars, in gold, right? the world didn't want to use irredeemable notes of a private bank as reserve. So the deal that we made in Bretton Woods was, okay, even though American citizens can't get gold for their Federal Reserve notes, And even though there's no promise to pay written on the note, right, like it used to have, it's not a real note because a note has to promise to pay something. A promise to pay nothing isn't a promise at all. So even though U.S. Federal Reserve notes were no longer real notes for the American people and they were no longer real dollars because the dollar was gold, what we told the world was, hey, Americans can't get any gold for these notes, but foreign governments can If foreign governments through their central banks want to hold these dollars in reserve, then we agree to repay the notes in gold. So foreign governments could get what American citizens couldn't get, which was gold for their Federal Reserve notes. But that in and of itself at least kept the U.S. government somewhat honest because even if the American people couldn't demand gold, foreign governments could. And so the U.S. knew that, and so it still would have to have some degree of fiscal and monetary responsibility because if it started to print too many Federal Reserve notes without the gold to back them up, well, then it would be in the circumstance where foreign governments would now demand redemption. They would no longer want to hold onto a promise to pay gold if they didn't think the U.S. government had enough gold to keep its promises. And of course, that's exactly what happened. But then, as I mentioned in that video, instead of Nixon doing the responsible thing to address the problem, he did the irresponsible thing and shut the gold window. But I don't want to talk any more about that now because I addressed that pretty thoroughly in the video that I want everybody to watch. The title of it is The Day the Dollar Died. So the new title is The Day the Dollar Died, Director's Cut. So that's the one I want everybody to watch, and that's the one I want you to share with your friends. 